The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Government warned London house building is grinding to a halt. A new benchmark for sustainable housing wins planning permission in East Sussex. Loss of Jewish East End heritage as Landmark Bagel Shop closes its doors. And a £6 million rebrand for London's Orange Line. My name is Poppy Waring. I produce the Open City podcast. And I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Fran Williams. Fran is an architectural journalist and some of you may recognise her as an occasional host of this show. Welcome back, Fran. Thanks for having me. House building in London is, quote, grinding to a halt, according to the G15 Group, which represents the capital's 11 largest housing associations. Their warning came after the delivery of new affordable houses plummeted by three quarters in 12 months. This week, The Guardian reported that in a letter to Housing and Community Secretary Michael Gove, the G15 slammed his policies for not going far enough to boost housing supply. The group also appealed for an injection of billions of pounds to properly fund an affordable house building programme. According to the letter, members of the G15 are expected to commence building on just 1,769 homes in London this year. That's a staggering 76% decrease on the 7,363 started in 2022-23. This coincides with a major announcement from Gove revealing a series of new policies aimed at increasing housing development, the most significant of which is an overhaul of the planning system to make it easier for developers to secure permission to build on brownfield sites. While the G15 welcomed the new raft of policies, the letter stressed they would not be enough to meet the scale of need in London. The G15 chair, Fiona Fletcher, said, quote, Your recent interventions do not go far enough to address what, by your own admission, is a broken system. Despite the crises facing Londoners, the government has failed to step up and invest in the delivery of social housing. Meanwhile, over in Newquay, Adam Architecture is drawing up a £3 million plan for 24 new social homes for Prince William's Duchy of Cornwall estate. Last summer on this show, we covered the Prince's plans to develop workable solutions to tackle rising homelessness with an ambitious project that they have coined Homewards. This would see the development of six local projects around his UK estates. According to the AJ, this first phase of the project will include, quote, high quality temporary accommodation for people dealing with homelessness, along with wraparound support such as counselling and training services. All 24 homes will be operationally low carbon with solar panels and heat pumps. Ten years are set to include one bed apartments and four bedroom homes. So, Fran, what's this all about? Um, The G15, for context, are quite a big deal because the members own and manage more than 770,000 homes and together build about 15% of all affordable homes across the country. So they're saying that the delivery of new housing is slowing because of a, a raft of issues, including rising prices of construction materials, higher expenditure on existing stock after Grenfell and fixing the sector's damp and mould problems. 
But they've also, in this letter, accused the government of focusing too much on home ownership and not on the massive social housing need. So, Fran, what is the significance of these top house builders uh, directly calling out the government over such a short-termist view of housing delivery? And really, will it make any difference? So the G15 represents London's 11 largest housing associations, whose members are traditionally the biggest not-for-profit builders of affordable housing in London. It includes names such as Peabody Trust, Clarion and LNQ to name the top three. Um, and obviously they revealed in their letter that they are on track to start building just 1,769 homes in the capital this year, which is obviously a massive fall of 76%. It's really concerning. Um, and the letter, which was co-signed by the Centre for London Think Tank, estimated that one in four Londoners lived in poverty once housing costs were accounted for. So the letter has called on the government to invest £15 billion a year over the next decade so that 90,000 social rent homes could be built annually, including 30,000 in London. However, the significance of these top house builders directly calling out the government for having such a short-termist view lies in several factors, including their own understanding of the housing market and the challenges faced in delivering new homes. And I think their criticism carries some weight because they are directly involved in the construction and management of a portion of the country's housing stock. Um, and given 80% of the country's new housing is delivered by just five players, the G15's concerns about slowing delivery rates and the reasons behind it highlight broader issues, as this isn't just a problem for these companies. It affects the entire housing market and the population's access to affordable housing. It also points to long-term planning. By accusing the government of focusing too much on short-term goals like home ownership, these house builders are advocating for more comprehensive and a long-term approach to housing policy. They are highlighting the need for investment and strategies that address the broader social housing need. So overall, when major industry players voice their concerns, it often prompts policymakers to take notice. The government does rely on collaboration with these companies to address housing challenges effectively. And hopefully criticism from these companies may push the government to reassess its priorities. Whether this criticism will lead to significant changes in government policy depends on various factors, including political will, public pressure and the government's broader agenda. But it does perhaps increase the likelihood of them listening as it draws attention to the urgency and complexity of the issue from a perspective rooted in experience and obviously the numbers are just shocking. So in this letter the G15 highlights that only 35% of planned new homes are going to be in London and that compares to 70% um, at the start of last year. So this trend of house building moving out of the capital Fran, why are we seeing this trend? And is this something we should be concerned about? There are many reasons that house building is moving out of the capital. Yesterday, The Guardian published a really good opinion piece by Peter Apps, who is the author of Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. And he states at the start, if Britain had its priorities right, London's homelessness crisis would be amongst its most pressing social issues. At the moment, the capital has over 60,000 homeless households, including 80,000 children. And there has been a rise of 70% in the number of households in temporary accommodation since 2010. London boroughs spend approximately £450 million on homelessness in the period 2023 to 24, and it will soon run out of money. He states that the only long-term fix to this crisis is the provision of social rented housing, which our capital desperately needs more of. And obviously, I agree, it is shocking that the opposite is happening, as was reported last week, when the capital's largest housing associations said that they are expecting to start building on only 1,700 affordable homes over the next year. 
There are tough market conditions at the moment and the pressures that the London market mean that these issues are at their most extreme in the capital. But the same model and many of the same funding pressures apply across the rest of England. Numbers might not drop as sharply elsewhere, but they are very likely to start falling. It's an issue that hasn't come up from nowhere, though. And as Pete touches on in this um, brief history in his article, up until 2010, housing associations mixed a bit of private borrowing with government cash to fund the construction or purchase of social homes. And a reasonable amount of homes were still being built by the end of the new Labour era. But in 2010, George Osborne cut the government grant by 60% with the idea that social landlords could generate profits from their businesses and use these profits to fill the hole left by government cuts. To do this, they would charge higher rents on new build homes and cut the day-to-day costs of managing their properties. And in London, this meant building homes for sale to try and turn a profit, which is obviously a flawed model. Meanwhile, higher rents have pushed the poorest out from social housing. In terms of delivery, the sector was obviously able to hold off for a little while, but the model is now broken, mainly because housing associations had to increase their spending on existing homes. The rise in interest rates has also made borrowing way more expenses and has increased the cost of building a new home in London. The profits from market housing have now reduced drastically, so there's no longer enough money to even build higher rent affordable homes at scale in the capital. Since 2010, London has had about 350,000 homes built, most of which were for private sale, but most of the profit made has never really been put back into funding the supply of affordable housing. So we should definitely be concerned about house building moving out of the capital. As Pete Apps says in his article, if things stay as they are, the intermediate Londoner, and what I mean by this, um, our teachers and nurses, for example, won't be able to stay in London as they are being priced out. Private tenants will see more of their income taken up by rent and those seeking housing from local authorities will be moved even further afield and obviously London's homeless children will wait even longer for a home. And it was reported last year that primary schools were already emptying due to lack of children. It's really quite bleak and we need a model where social housing is properly funded. I wanted to circle back to something you talked about earlier, which is the the short termism, which the the government have adopted with their housing policy. So G15 in this letter, they've called for an affordable housing commission um, to be set up, which would be essentially be an organisation which would set house building targets, sort of aligned with all of the best evidence that's been coming out, but also hold the government accountable for them. So, Fran, what would an organisation setting and monitoring house building targets look like? Would they make a difference? And and why, given the sort of political controversies around house building, do we not have an organisation like this already? So it wasn't entirely clear what they meant by an affordable housing commission in their letter. Inside Housing quoted the letter as saying, quote, despite the crisis facing Londoners, the government has failed to step up and invest in the delivery of social housing. Insufficient sustainable funding, along with many structural issues, is a critical reason why housing is in crisis in our capital city. And the article described how landlords continue to face a kind of perfect storm of financial challenges, including high interest rates, inflation and tackling building safety and decarbonisation. A heightened focus on housing conditions has also caused the organisations to ramp up their spending on existing stock. And as a result, the letter said an expert body should obviously be created to end the problem of short termism that has dominated housing policy. An affordable housing commission should set house building targets aligned with the best evidence and hold government accountable to delivering them, as you said. This is perhaps also because of the frustration caused in the industry by the revolving door of housing ministers. 15 people have held the role in the past 14 years. 
So whether an affordable housing commission would be a good thing for Londoners, I can't really say. Um, but some boroughs are starting to make their own. From my research in January last year, Waltham Forest Council launched its own affordable housing commission to help ensure that its approach to house building is evidence-based and brings benefits to all of its residents, from those moving into new schemes to the existing communities and the wider community of people who work and live in the borough. And through their commission, they bring independent experts to look at evidence and how the organisation is currently building and providing affordable homes. And then it makes recommendations on how it can maximise the delivery of genuinely affordable housing in the future. However, as Pete Apps said in his article, what we need most is a model where affordable housing is properly funded. And that's the most critical thing. Absolutely. So moving on to like the second part of this story, which is Prince William's plans to tackle the homelessness crisis. First of all, like, what do you make of this? Uh, this first phase of the development, which is to be delivered with support from a local homelessness charity called St Petrox, um, it aims to create high quality temporary accommodation that feels like home and has a clear pathway to permanent accommodation for people available as well. So the duchy has also touted plans for more than 400 social rented homes in Faversham in Kent on another section of land uh, owned by the estate. What do you make of this? And do you think it's schemes like this which could be the solution to tackling the housing crisis? So as the AJ's Gino Spockier reported last week, all of the social homes in the scheme designed by Adam Architecture will be traditionally Cornish seaside and high quality in design. Um, and there's a local practice also on the scheme, ALA Architects, um, and the scheme is in Landsleden, a suburb of Newquay, which has been master planned by Adam on land owned by the Duchy. So according to reports, the latest development, which is also Prince William's first social homes, I think, will include high quality temporary accommodation for people dealing with homelessness, along with wraparound support, as you mentioned. And this comes as last year as the Prince's Foundation announced it would provide £3 million to fund this Homewards project, which emulates one run in Finland, I think, where people are given homes unconditionally and aims to help homeless people into permanent accommodation, regardless of their circumstances. And the Prince has also said it plans to create a private rented scheme for Nansleden for people on lower incomes, providing longer term tenancies and transparent rent increases. The estate is also committed to building more than 400 social rented homes and a further 474 affordable dwellings on its new development of South East Faversham in Kent. However, the move has been dismissed as, quote, more spin than substance by anti-monarchy campaigners, as The Guardian says in its article. It quoted Graham Smith, chief executive of Republic, as saying that the UK would spend at least £3.4 billion on the monarchy over the next decade, making the point that this could be invested in homes for those who most need them, rather than 24, and I think the quote was, palatial homes for just one family. I think this makes the point that the general public are all too aware of the housing crisis and rising private rental prices. And unlike William, are all having to deal with the consequences of it. And this is a very limited scheme as a response to it. As well, the Duchy of Cornwall estate, which stretches from Cornwall to Kent, has a portfolio of land, property and investments which are valued at more than £1 billion. And looking at the wider context since 2010, England has obviously seen a 63% cut in funding for affordable housing with only 9,500 social homes delivered last year, compared with 40,000 a decade earlier. In context of this, 24 homes are absolutely nothing. 
Planning permission has been granted for a 685-home scheme dubbed UK's Most Sustainable Neighbourhood in East Sussex. This was reported by the AJ this week. The Phoenix Project, developed and master plan by Human Nature, a company founded by former Greenpeace directors Michael Manelson and Jonathan Smales, will become the UK's largest housing development made from engineered timber. Detailed plans of the first 44 homes were approved by the South Downs National Parks Planning Committee last week and a further 641 homes, 30% of which are set to be affordable, and 350 square metres of workspace. Also included in the plans is a new healthcare centre, a community space, a restaurant, bar, retail space, nursery, energy centre, a new footbridge over the River Ouse and a riverside walkway and areas of public realm are to follow as well. Human Nature Chief Executive Jonathan Smales said, quote, the current mainstream model of development is catastrophic, baking in deeply unsustainable fabric, infrastructure and transport, fueling the climate and nature crises. It also creates social divisions and exacerbates loneliness. We aim to show that living sustainably can be a joy, not an exercise in self-denial, made far easier by the design of neighbourhoods. The master plan design stresses the importance of connection and interaction in shared spaces and promotes alternatives to private vehicle ownership through a co-mobility hub that includes electric car share, electric bike services and a shuttle bus facility. Climate progressive measures are set to be integrated throughout the entire development with a data-driven renewable energy system, on-site recycling, waste management, composting facilities and an urban farming and community gardening strategy. So Fran, the Phoenix development will be situated on a 7.9 hectare brownfield site which previously housed an ironworks and more recently an industrial park. Um, This piece of land has been earmarked for housing before, yet, as is quite a familiar story, the site has a chequered history of stalled previous schemes and is sat in limbo for many years now. Um, What do you make of these latest plans by human nature? Could this plan actually be successful? So on uh, social media, when the approval of this development was announced, it was seen as a huge win for the industry, with many architects congratulating the whole team involved on the project. Malis Howard, director of Archeo, said on LinkedIn, we've all been waiting for this hopeful day. It's a site that, as you have said, has a chequered history of stall schemes and has been earmarked for housing within the South Downs local plan. I'm not super familiar with all the previous schemes, but I know a plan designed by CZWG for 800 homes failed to find support in 2007. Then in 2015, after the site was bought by the Stanton Group, RH Partnership Architects did win planning for a contentious mixed-use scheme for the same site as part of a design team that was appointed in 2011. This scheme was a joint venture between Lewis District Council and developer Stanton, North Street Limited, and it aimed to deliver 416 new homes, 51 extra care flats and a health centre. At the time, community development company Lewis Phoenix Rising, which represents a number of creative businesses on on the site, campaigned against the North Street quarter master plan. They said at the time that the approved master plan didn't provide enough affordable housing or workspace. 
And then even though the Stanton scheme had planning permission, it proved to be unviable and didn't progress to site. So the scheme that has just been approved as of last week is called Phoenix, and it has been master planned this time by Human Nature's in-house design team, Periscope, and Catherine Firth, Director of Master Planning and Urban Design at Arup. And there is a long list of well-known practices involved, including Adam Rich's Architects, Al-Jawad Pike, Ash Sackler, Charles Holland May, Material Cultures, Mole, TDO and Archeo. And Human Nature obviously describes it as a new type of radically sustainable neighbourhood um, and says it's going to be the largest all-timber development in the UK. So last week, the South Downs National Park Authority granted detailed permission for new flood defences, access and a trio of five-storey buildings providing 44 homes designed by Ash Sackler, which is going to be the first phase. And it has also given outline permission for 641 more homes. And I think this sums up why so many were kind of excited by this development. It almost seems as a reaction to the various crises of our industry at the moment, climate, housing, construction quality, etc., um, and the first homes designed in detail by Ash Sackler are interwoven with play areas, communal garden plots and a shared cycle store intended to facilitate interaction and promote a culture of shared living. And a central courtyard designed in collaboration with Periscope will be available for community use and will act as a flood defence. Importantly, too, unlike previous proposals, industrial structures on the site will be repurposed to house most of the community spaces, um, including canteen, event hall, etc., and aiming to create a place for all generations of people with mixed incomes, 30% of the 685 residences will be affordable homes, 154 of which will be built to the government's local housing allowance rates and the remainder built as part of the first home scheme. So it really feels like a scheme that has been designed in collaboration with its community and for its community. And for that reason, I think it will be a success. It's ambitious, but we need ambitiousness, particularly at a time when the housing crisis seems so dire. Mm, yeah, no, I, I mean, looking at the renders of this project online, they look pretty impressive. And, you know, all, all this stuff you've just gone through with the sustainability, the the community focus of it, it all seems almost too good to be true. And, and on other developments, it's these features um, which seem to be dropped quite early on. But um, Jonathan Smales, the developer for this project, he says that he sees the whole project as a way of demonstrating that actually there are better ways to build and live um, while still also turning a profit. If they do manage to succeed with everything they've outlined in this proposal, what kind of message does it send to these big five house builders, which we've already discussed are responsible for a huge proportion of new house building in this uh, country? And will the success of this mean that we're able to hold other companies up to a higher standard? So just to describe the site a bit more, the existing built heritage isn't super noteworthy. But what's interesting about this project is that it has adopted a process termed mining the Anthropocene by um, architect and academic Duncan Baker Brown. Smells in human nature was quoted by building, I think, last year, saying that they believe too much money is taken out of places by landowners and developers at the expense of communities, quality and sustainability, and that a new balance should be found. So on this scheme, which is aiming to be an exemplar project on a strategic site, Human Nature have apparently opted to take a more modest profit margin in order to deliver the affordable homes as well as wider community and economic benefits to the town. 
And as the company has grown, it has been approached by other landowners and local authorities since Phoenix proposals were put forward and it intends to deploy building typologies developed for Phoenix on other developments. So I think the hope here is that eventually economies of scale will help drive the social and environmental impacts and deliver a higher overall return on, on the investment. Where other house builders can learn is within the design process, I think. And on this master plan, conscious of how sustainability and quality are often compromised to ensure commercial viability, the company has sought to lock in quality by developing its own design code for the project, which was submitted with the planning application. So subsequent phases of the project will need to abide by this design code. And there is also the design code advisory group drawn up from the local community. Getting planning permission for schemes like this in East Sussex isn't easy, but bringing the community, local council and national park on board with them, human nature has reduced the risk and they've already got buy-in from the local community by prioritising local amenities for young people at an early stage to show residents of the town that the investment would also benefit them in the short term and not just in the future. So it seems that the community is on board and... Um, human nature is tapping into a local desire to build something better. And I think this is where the big five can take notes. Mm. So picking up on that theme of community, the developer on this project is based in Lewis, uh, where this development is happening in East Sussex. And they approached the local pressure group Phoenix Rising, offering their support um, and working with those who opposed the previous scheme. Frank, can you tell us a bit more about what it is about having this local knowledge and connections that makes or breaks a project? Why why can this um, sort of connection with local knowledge be a really beneficial thing for master plans? I think this also feeds into that issue that in that recent decades have seen house building in the UK consolidated into the hands of a few large companies, as mentioned before, where there was once a diversified industry that included many small and medium-sized firms. We now have 80% of the country's new housing delivered by five big players. And so breaking into the sector and exploring alternative ways of doing things can be very challenging. And here, human nature is trying to demonstrate that smaller, independent players still have a role to play in the sector. This would be considered a huge site in any UK context, but it is also notable for sitting within the South Downs National Park and lying on the edge of a popular and historic town. And just to talk about the Lewis Phoenix Rising group a bit, um, that was formed in 2014 and it obviously opposed the Stanton scheme and called for more sustainable forms of development. So human nature, also local, approached Phoenix Rising to offer support. Apparently, Phoenix Rising alerted human nature to the fact that the land was being put up for sale by the previous owner, developer, and so human nature was able to compete to secure it. Few other developers had the risk appetite, local knowledge and connections, passion for Lewis and the site. And then it was reported by local press in 2020 that human nature's premise was to really move at speed on the site. And the developer did assemble a team very quickly after that with an approach to working with the town and those who opposed the previous schemes. And the team of architects they compiled are mostly known for their community engagement work and their interest in sustainability. Jonathan Smales is obviously based locally and through the project, Human Nature has set up a design code advisory group drawn from the local community and including representatives of several statutory bodies. And from the planning commission win, I think it shows that the community is really on board. So overall, I think local knowledge is very important, as well as a good understanding of local history and issues. 
Community engagement washing can be a huge issue on large master planning schemes like this, particularly when the rhetoric is strong but not actually followed through. But I believe when those stakeholders are local and really understand the voice of the community, that's when community engagement is done right and the community can be kept on side. So alongside the sort of community aspect of this project, the sustainability is one of the big features that have been really touted. And you've already talked about this. Um, The structures on site are set to be made from cross-laminated timber frames and hempcrete panels are also going to be one of the building materials used. Um, East Sussex is the most second most densely wooded county in the UK after Surrey and Smales hopes the project will help kickstart a revival in sustainable forestry for construction. With so much emphasis on the sustainability of this project, Fran, what do you make of the green credentials? Is it really as revolutionary as its developers are are claiming in, in these articles? So the green credentials of this project are great and they're highly ambitious, But this is also the same kind of high quality, community centric and sustainable housing that often appears to be implemented much more instinctively in the rest of Northern Europe. So for the UK, yes, it is revolutionary, but in the context of Europe, no. Saying that, I think it's great that projects with such green credentials are appearing in the pipeline. Everyone is obviously talking about sustainability as we have a critical climate crisis, but not many are actually putting the principles into practice in the same way. A famous East London bagel shop, known for never being closed in the more than 150 years since its opening, has unexpectedly shut its doors after its premises were apparently repossessed by the landlord. The closure of the well-loved eatery was covered by The Guardian and Independent last week when images shared on social media appeared to show a notice from law firm Thursk Winton plastered to the shutters. The note read, quote, We have taken possession of the above-mentioned property. Any attempt of re-entry of the said property is an offence and proceedings will be taken for trespasses and criminal damage. Uh, This note has since been replaced by a more friendly note from the bagel shop, reassuring customers the premises, quote, will be closed for a short period to conduct essential electrical maintenance. Founded in 1855 and now known affectionately as the Yellow One, thanks to its unmissable sign, the bagel shop was the first bagel bakery to open on Brick Lane and has since become a landmark institution. With the Yellow One now temporarily closed, only its neighbour, Bagel Bake, remains to provide the historic tastes and traditions of the Jewish East End. So, Fran, are you familiar with the bagel shop on Brick Lane and what do you make of it? I am indeed. It is an East London icon. Um, I remember going to London as a teenager, making the trip to Brick Lane to go to the bagel shop. Although I have to say, I only used to go to um, the white one as I preferred the bagels there. And a trip to the bagel shop was always an indication of rising inflation for me as a young adult. I remember when the bagels were less than a pound for a smoked salmon and cream cheese one. And now they're obviously hugely more expensive. I don't know how much they are now because I haven't been for a while. So, yeah, I think it's really sad it's closed. And it's an important part of Brick Lane's social heritage. And it seems strange um, because I don't think anyone really knows why it has closed. Um, The Guardian article pointed out the website had been taken down as well. And one of the comments on the Instagram page post said, um, it will be such a sad and unnecessary loss if the shop doesn't reopen. If this possession order is genuine, I appeal to the freeholder to reconsider this piece of our history needs to be preserved. Which one was your favourite? 
Well, I was. We were talking about this in the office this morning, and I would always go to the yellow one. Because, really? Yeah, because it didn't have as big a queue outside. Uh. Uh, and like the Freddo frogs, it's a it's a good mark of inflation because. I do remember the first time I went there, I couldn't believe how somewhere in Shore, next to Shoreditch would be so affordable to get a pretty generous salt beef sandwich was my go-to. But yeah, as you said, there, there is quite a lot of confusion as to whether this is a temporary closure or whether this is a permanent problem coming from the landlord. But whatever the outcome of this, it seems to be part of a bigger trend of gentrification pushing out communities and local businesses in London's East End. Uh, so Brick Lane has historically been home to both a vibrant Jewish and Bangladeshi community. However, intense gentrification, um, one study found that the borough of Tower Hamlets, which is where Brick Lane is situated, had the highest levels of gentrification in London from 2010 to 2016. Um, this has meant that a significant part of these communities have been displaced. When you look at Brick Lane today, it's filled with mainly expensive vintage clothes shops and boutiques. So the removal of this bagel shop, is it really such a big deal that this might be gone? So Brick Lane, as the popularity of the bagel shop indicates, is is also a famous landmark for London. It runs from Swanfield Street in Bethnal Green in the north and crosses Bethnal Green Road before reaching the busiest, most commercially active part, which runs through Spitalfields along its eastern edge. As a New York Times article pointed out a couple of years ago, it used to be known as Bangladeshtown and is home to the largest Bangladeshi community in Britain. It's not just famous for its bagel shops, it's famous for its many curry houses. And Brick Lane's name actually comes from the brick and tile manufacturing that started in the 15th century there, using local brick earth deposits. Brewing came along in the 1600s with the Truman family establishing the brewery on Brick Lane, which we know as the Truman Brewery now. And then in the 17th century, starting with the Huguenots, the area was expanded to housing and became a centre for weaving, tailoring and the developing clothing industry. So it's got clothing heritage as well. And it's been a centre of a lot of immigration for many groups of the area, including Bangladeshis and Jews most notably. However, the area has broadened more recently to becoming an art and fashion student area, I suppose, with each year most of the capital's fine art and fashion courses exhibiting their work near Brick Lane. And with most places in central London, is now becoming part of the trend of gentrification. If you look at Shoreditch nearby, which used to also have a history of textile making and in the 16th century was an important centre of Elizabethan theatre, something I didn't know and was formerly a predominantly working-class area. Since 1996, it's become a very popular and fashionable part of London, particularly associated with the creative industries and been subject to considerable gentrification, with accompanying, with, um, accompanying rises in land and property prices, with former industrial buildings being converted to offices and flats. Even um, the AJ has been priced out of this area. Our previous office building is being knocked down this year to make way for a new office block, so we had to move to Blackfriars. So the same is clearly happening to Brick Lane. In 2022, a borough committee approved plans to build a five-storey shopping mall in and around the parking lot beside the Truman Brewery. This project will include brand-named chain shops, office spaces and a public square. And the previous year, an office block and part of the Truman Brewery itself was also improved despite local protests and over 7,000 objections over changes to Brick Lane's character. A New York Times article at the time quoted the residents as saying that the new shopping centre would undermine the area's architectural and social character. 
I mean, this this um, stat is from two years ago, but said at the time 62% of Brick Lane's curry restaurants had closed because of rising rent and lack of government support. The bagel bakeries represent traces of its former dominant immigrant population groups and the closing of one just highlights that this area, which was once a symbol of multicultural London, is slowly dying. So we need to find ways of regenerating that is much, much more inclusive. For example, overcrowding is a huge issue in Tower Hamlets, with the borough having one of the largest list of applicants in London waiting for low-income housing. And the development proposed for the Truman Brewery doesn't include any social housing. So as with much of London's gentrification, it's pushing these poorer communities out. So there's a real danger that Brick Lane will become very like Broadway Market and Columbia Road. So in my opinion, it is quite a big deal that this bagel shop might be gone. Um, It's representing that gentrification is truly here in this area. The London Overground Network has received a £6 million rebrand in a bid to make it easier for passengers to navigate. This was reported in The Standard this week. The so-called Orange Line currently has a staggering 113 stations across six different branches. Under London Mayor Sadiq Khan's £6.3 million rebrand, each line has been renamed and has its own distinguishable colour, meaning new maps have been rolled out across the London Underground Network. Khan says the new names, which are the Lioness, Suffragette, Windrush, Weaver, Mild May and Liberty Lines, were chosen to celebrate London's culture and recent history. One commuter spoke to The Guardian about the rebrand, saying, quote, It's nice to have the different sides of London rather than just royalty. However, not everyone has embraced the new titles, which were unveiled last week. Some critics have slammed Khan for wasting public money on, quote, wokery. Others felt the money could have been spent on other things, such as improving the service, increasing CCTV, or even a reduction in fare prices. So, Fran, this scheme was designed to make the overground network a bit easier to navigate. Personally, I found it pretty easy before. Um, However, this rebrand has gathered quite a mixed reaction, with some saying that all of these different lines is actually far more complicated. Um, What's your experience as a passenger on the overground network? And do you think the new names and colours have made it easier for people? I actually don't feel too strongly about this topic and I'm agnostic to whether the name changes have made the lines more complicated. I like the overground network. I use it regularly as it's my nearest line where I live in Hackney. I think I saw someone on social media making the point that at some point the underground, which most Londoners now differentiate by their colours and names, was once known as just the underground. So I think people will get to learn the different lines for sure. And the London Underground itself historically was a mishmash of other railways, starting with the Metropolitan Railway and the City and South London Railway before acquiring the Underground name and logo in 1908, which by then everyone knew it as the Tube. And there was a Guardian article which pointed out that many people already had unofficial names for many parts of the Underground, Overground, I meant. I think some rail workers had designated the Gospel Oak to Barking Line as the Goblin, while the Euston to Watford section had been known as the Harlequin since the 1980s. So, yeah, I mean, you said you're quite agnostic about the changes, but a lot of criticism has been given to the names that have been chosen. Um, Do you have an opinion or do you think that it was the right choice? 
So obviously, Sadiq Khan has been savaged by right-wing critics for wokery and virtue signalling, with The Guardian pointing out some even going so far to say he's supporting terrorism by choosing suffragette, as well as obviously wasting £6 million public money for the new maps. However, The Guardian also pointed out that most Londoners were simply more interested to hear more about the history behind the names. I think where the controversy is laid is particularly with the Windrush line. More than 50 people have died waiting for their Windrush compensation. And as campaigners say, it's time for justice, not gestures. Um, But obviously, Khan has no jurisdiction over the Windrush compensation scheme. But some had perhaps said that his timing could have been better. But I can see the logic in trying to preserve parts of London's social and cultural heritage long term through this renaming project. However, what the debate over the rebrand is forgetting is the actual state of railway infrastructure outside London and particularly in the north. Commentators from outside London have pointed out that Londoners have the luxury of rail services worth bickering over. So in that context, I think um, the debate over the names is quite silly. And I don't know, personally, I like the names. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another criticism that TfL have received for this project uh, is the cost. So a lot of people, including Susan Hall, who is the Conservative Party candidate for Mayor of London, have slammed Khan for spending £6 million on this project when there are so many other areas of, of the London transport system that require funding. Fran, do you think they have a point or is £6 million actually quite a small amount of money relative and um, this is actually ultimately going to be a good thing for London. So Susan Hall wrote a comment piece for The Standard in which she said that the overground rebrand was, quote, a sorry tale of misplaced priorities and virtue signalling gone awry. She basically called out Khan for being fixated on superficial changes rather than addressing the current issues of London's transport infrastructure, which includes high fares, lack of CCTV and not enough functioning trains. Um, However, £6 million is actually a tiny amount of money when it comes to infrastructure projects. The Elizabeth Line, which opened in 2022, cost over £18 billion and was three and a half years late. And um, going a bit more kind of local, the controversial Silvertown Tunnel, which will provide much needed connections between the Greenwich Peninsula and the Royal Docks in East London, is due to cost £1.2 So it's a drop in in the ocean compared to those. Yeah. Also in the news uh, this morning, I saw that King Charles is trying to rebrand himself. So he's he's trying to change the logo of the crown, which appears on the uh, on the website. <laughs> I know it seems like, and I, I assume I, I haven't seen a cost for this uh, rebrand yet, but I assume they'll have to change all of the sort of royal merchandise, post boxes, stamps, passports, everything with the new crown logo so and all with public money exactly yeah i mean i think i can think of many ways that that money would be better spent anyway for sure on to the culture section um so we have a couple of things this week uh first up there is a large and evocative exhibition starting at the hackney museum it's mainly a collection of photographs looking at local life from the 1970s focusing on activism and poverty um the sort of themes of the exhibition span poverty of the east end um immigration violence uh, which erupted in the 80s and sort of follows things up to recent times um 
Um, there's also, I haven't been to it yet, but there is a large scale model of the Holly Street Estate Tower Block, which was uh, constructed um, from photos of the estate taken in 1997 by Tom Hunter, um, which looks uh, pretty interesting to go and see. And so that is open now and it is will be open until Saturday, the 23rd of March at the Hackney Museum. So one to check out. In Open City News, uh, we are hiring at the moment for a new open house festival administrator. Um, if you go to the Open City website, there's lots of information on how to apply there. And we also have part two of the Baylight Academy of British Housing course, which will be taking place on Friday the 1st of March and will be visiting various extraordinary residential landmarks in South East England. Well, Fran, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show as a guest this time. Um, where can listeners go to keep up to speed with all of your work? So um, I would head over to the Architects Journal, which is at um, the website is architectsjournal.co.uk. And I'm also on Twitter or rather X um, and um, Instagram. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.